The third one will be next week. Live well. Until then, let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we ask now that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts and in our minds. Father, please turn our thoughts and our desires towards you. And Father, we ask that you will be our teacher and we will learn from you through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just remind you that we're addressing three questions in relation to this passage. First one is, why did Paul write about marriage in Ephesians at this point, or even at all, in the letter? Secondly, what's the meaning of this passage? And thirdly, how, if at all, does it apply to us? Last week, we considered question one. Why does Paul write about marriage? Let me summarize the conclusion. Paul is addressing key relationships in the first century household. Wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, and masters. Because the quality of those relationships in the household will have a great impact, for good or for bad, on the church. Where the households go is where the church will go. And he's writing about marriage because the relationship between husbands and wives will have a critical impact on the other relationships in the household. So where marriages go in these households, and he's writing to Christian households, where marriage goes will impact where the household goes, which will impact how the church goes. That's the background to this address about husbands and wives. Once again, you were very, very patient with me last week. Uh, I went very slowly, methodically. I'm going to do the same again this morning. And what I want to do is to open up question two. The second question, let me remind you, is what is Paul teaching here about marriage? There are three significant words in this passage. The first one is submit in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. It's picked up again in verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The second word is head, as in verse 23 The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. The third word is love, as in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. I want to focus this morning particularly on husbands. By the way, you'll notice that the longest section in this passage about marriage is addressed to husbands. Wives, women, be patient. I, I will get to submit. Okay? Trust me. 
Let's begin with the word head. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Notice that Paul is making a link between Jesus and husbands. There is a parallel he is drawing. Jesus is the head of the church, parallels the husband is head of the wife. But how does that parallel work? In what sense does a husband being head of the wife parallel that of Jesus being head of the church? Well, Paul's used head specifically in two previous occasions in the letter. In the first one, which is in that section in chapter 1, in verses 15 to 23, when it comes to verse 22, Paul writes, And God placed all things under his, that is Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Head there is being used in the context of power. Christ's dominion over everything. There is no power anywhere that is now not subject to Christ. But notice, it's not power for power's sake. That power is for the church. All power has been given to Christ for the sake of the church. The second use of head is in chapter 4 in verses 15 and 16. But if you go earlier back, the concern that Paul has is about the church growing in unity. And so in verse 11, and that section following there, he describes how Christ has provided gifts, apostles, prophets, and so on, to equip the people of God so that they will, in verse 13, reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. Paul's using the image of a body. And he's saying that in order to grow in maturity, a body needs to have a head. Headless bodies don't function very well. They lack direction. They like life, of course, don't they? Paul here is using head in relation to connectedness and growth in maturity and unity. Two uses then of the word head. And then we come to the third one. By the way, notice both of those are applied to Christ and about the relationship between Christ and the church, his body. Power, for the sake of the church. Head, the importance of being connected to the head, the body of Christ, being connected to the head in the context of maturity. Now in chapter 5 and verse 23, we come to the third use of the word head. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Once again, the word head is used of Jesus and his relationship with the church, his body. Christ is the head of the church, his body. But here, the word is also applied to the relationship between husbands and wives. The husband is the head of the wife. So there is a parallel, as I've said, 
between Christ as head and the husband as head. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So what's the parallel? In what sense is a Christian husband? He's talking to Christian marriages here in a Christian household. In what sense is a husband the head of his wife in a way that parallels Christ as head of the church? Is he talking about rule and dominion? The context in which head is used in chapter 1. In which case, that would mean that the wife, when she submits, is submitting to the rule, to the authority of her husband. Does he mean that? Or is it something to do with maturity and connectedness? Or is it something else? Well, you'll notice that how head functions in chapter 1 is given to us by the context. He's using head in relation to power. In chapter 4, the context shows us how head is to be understood. The importance of connectedness. So in chapter 5, where Paul uses this word in relation to Christ and husbands, we need to look at the text, the context. Paul tells us Christ is the head of the church, but then he adds something. Do you notice that phrase? Of which he, that is Christ, is the Savior. Why does he put that there? It would make perfect sense without it. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. So why does he put it in? Well, certainly it differentiates husbands and Christ. Only Christ can be saviour. Husbands, you don't save anybody. Well, not in the way Christ does. Get over it. But I want to suggest there's something else going on here. Let's ask the question, how is Christ the saviour of the church? And the answer is, he saves the church by dying for the church. That is, Christ, who is the head of the church, dies for the church. You see, I think Paul wants to make it clear how husbands are to be the head of their wives in a way that parallels Christ and the church. And he's linking the idea of being head not with rule or authority or even with unity and maturity, but with self-giving. In fact, with love which is precisely what he goes on to describe. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me put it like this. Husbands, you are to be the head of your wife the way Christ is head of the church, which means you are to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. 
That's what it means, husbands, for you to be the head of your wife in a way that Christ is head of the church. Now this has enormous implications for how we understand verse 22, doesn't it? Wives, submit to your husbands. It means Paul is asking them to submit to love as defined as self-giving love. To submit to love, not to rule or authority. Live well till next week. I'm going to talk about that next week. You're being very, very patient with me. Hope you had lots of coffee this morning. Let's look at the second word. Second word is love. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Perhaps I ought to point out that love was not invented in the 1960s. The ancient world knew about love, romantic love, erotic love, all-consuming passion. What's more, there are writings in the ancient world that talk about the importance of husbands loving their wives. What is unparalleled, I think, unprecedented and radical is the kind of love Paul is talking about here. Husbands are to love their wives, verse 25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband's love for their wives is to be a love that's patterned on Christ's love for his church. Let's explore this a little further. Let me ask the question, or let us ask the question, why does Christ love the church in this way, this self-giving, self-sacrificial love. What is the purpose? Paul gives us the answer. End of verse 25. He gave himself up for her, that is the church, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In other words, Christ loves the church in this kind of way. He's willing to be ridiculed and humiliated, to be tortured. He chooses to become the lowest of the low, the slave of the slaves. And in the end, to lose his life, that is to die for us. For us. It's all about the church. It's all about us. He does it for us. For you. For me. Imagine a wedding. You're in the old stone building behind. All the guests are there. 
Church is packed. You've got a gentleman in your best suit. Maybe discovered a tie at the bottom of the drawer. Ladies, you're dressed up as well. And the groom's there and his entourage. Everybody's expectant. They're all waiting for the bride. And then she turns up. The signal goes up, the bride has arrived. And I know in churches you're all supposed to face the front because the minister's at the front and the <laughs> minister likes people to look at him. But all heads turn. And they see this young woman poised, beautiful, stunning, coming down the aisle. And some of the people in the congregation remember that little girl when she was small and she was mischievous and naughty, playing in the dirt. Images come back of her utterly filthy. Some of them may recall incidents as that young girl has grown up and become a teenager, times when she was wayward, when perhaps her parents despaired of what might happen to her. But here she is, utterly transformed. And there's an audible gasp comes from the congregation. That's the picture we need to have in mind when we think about why did Jesus love his church, his people, his body in this way. It is so that one day the church, his body, all the people who are united in him will appear and the whole creation will gasp in amazement in wonder. Because all our failures, our weakness, our sin, our brokenness, our lack of passion for God, all our failures in relationships with one another, it will all be gone and we will appear utterly radiant and everything in heaven and on earth will be amazed. Why does Christ love the church in the way he does, giving of himself this self-sacrificing love. Why? It's for the sake of the church so that the church will appear like that. And by the way, that's the pattern for the relationship between husbands and wives in marriage. That's how headship, if I can use that word, is to be demonstrated next week. Let me summarize. Christ's love, that is, his giving of himself for us, that kind of love is all about the church so that the church will one day be wonderful. But notice something else. Verse 25. 
Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself. Notice that little phrase at the end of verse 27. Christ loved the church to make her holy and so on, and to present her to himself. What does that mean? I've just said that this is all about the church. Christ dies for the sake of the church. It's for us. So what's this about? Because this seems to be about Jesus. And it is. Let me try to explain like this. I want you to imagine another wedding in the stone church building behind me. Everybody's there. The groom is there. And he looks splendid and excited. All the guests are there. And the wedding's due to start at three. The bride doesn't appear. And there are annoying smiles and nods as it gets to ten past three, quarter past three, twenty past three, half past three. Quarter to four. She's still not there. Four o'clock. She still hasn't arrived. And the children start to get fidgety, and so parents start to get fidgety. And people start talking to one another and looking at their watches, it gets to quarter past four and half past four and quarter to five and people start to leave. And it becomes clear she's not coming. And you look across and you see the groom. This was to be the greatest day of his life when the love of his life would come and they would make their promises to each other. And she's not calm. And he is disconsolate, desolate. Why have I asked you to imagine this picture? The reason is this. Because Jesus has decided, chosen, that he would be desolate without us. Without seeing us one day like a radiant bride coming to greet her husband, he would be disconsolate. Does he need us? No. That is what he has chosen. To put it another way, for Jesus, heaven, as we often talk about it, heaven would not be heaven if we were not there. To put it another way, the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, has chosen that he will not be without us. And therefore he chose to come to us in the person of the carpenter of Nazareth to give his life for us so that we would be united to him as a wife is united to her husband. He becomes nothing so that we can become everything. And that's why he's loved us as he did. Jesus does not want to be without us, without you. That's what it means by present to himself. 
That really is extraordinary. Those of us who have been around church and Christian things for a long time, we're used to saying God loves us, Jesus loves us, Jesus died for us. I want to suggest that is unbelievably amazing. Well, in case we're inclined not to get it, notice that Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24. In verse 31, here's the quotation. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Notice, there's a leaving. There is a cost involved. The man leaves his father and mother. He leaves home. The relationship that he looks forward to with his wife-to-be is so important, he's willing to leave. Secondly, Genesis 2.24 talks about a one-flesh relationship. The man leaves home because he wants to experience something. That is, he wants to experience a one-flesh relationship with his wife. What does that mean? A one-flesh relationship means that two people, a man and a woman, become so bound together that it's as if they have become one. So that when the wife flourishes, so does the husband, and when she does not, he does not, even though he may not know that he does not. Husbands can be remarkably obtuse in my experience. That's the link Paul's making in verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body. There's a profound interconnectedness between a husband and a wife because it's a one flesh relationship. Husbands, how your wife goes is how you are going. And then Paul does something utterly breathtaking. Something he describes as a great mystery. Verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Genesis 2.24 is about marriage, human marriage between a man and a woman. But, says Paul, Genesis 2.24 is actually pointing to something even greater, something that utterly transcends human marriage and something that had not been made known until the coming of Christ. That's the mystery. And the mystery is this. The marriage relationship pictures the relationship between Christ and his people. The marriage relationship, if you like, is an illustration of the divine love story and marriage. Because in the divine story, there's also a leaving that's necessary before the one flesh relationship can happen. And so Christ, like the man in Genesis 2, leaves, but his leaving is greater than the leaving that any other has experienced is the leaving of the Son of God who leaves behind the glory and the splendor 
He leaves his home, which is love. Leaves all that behind and comes to us in the person of the carpenter of Nazareth. He comes to win his bride, but she doesn't even want him. But he perseveres. He continues. He's determined to rescue her. And so he allows himself to be battered and humiliated, to lose everything, his reputation, even his life, because he has chosen to bind his life and ours so completely together that for him, life would not be life without his bride. He comes to make a one flesh relationship with us. Verse 30, we are members of his body. So what's Paul saying about marriage? He is saying that the relationship between husbands and wives is meant to give a glimpse of that divine love story and marriage. It is to be an echo, a lived out modeling of the relationship between Jesus and his church. Let me draw this to a conclusion. Jesus loves you. Do you know that? It's the kind of phrase that we use such a lot, isn't it? But I wonder if some of us have lost the sense of how much Jesus loves you. Maybe things have happened in our life and are currently going on and we wonder, does he really love me? Jesus loves you. Have you responded to that love? Allowed him to love you? Embraced his love? Submitted to his love? Husbands, how are we doing? Husbands, the model that God has given to us is Christ. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, how are you doing? Next week, I'll bring this to a conclusion. We'll ask the question, how does this, if at all, how does it apply to us? I hope you're beginning to see it applies very much to us. And yes, I will address that word, submit, live well. Let's pray.
Father, I'm sure that all of us would have to say, however long we've been followers of Jesus, however deep our experience, that our understanding of your love for us is inadequate. Your love for us is so extraordinary, so breathtaking. Father, please, would you, by your Holy Spirit this morning, for those of us who may be struggling in marriages, in life, in other ways, Father, would you please, by your Spirit, fill us afresh with your love, the knowledge that you love us. You have chosen to make that one flesh relationship with us. For Jesus to bind himself to us. And please encourage us as we go out in the knowledge and the experience of your love. In Jesus' name we pray.